or at least one individual. Right. He's deceived with a reason. That's the scary part. Because it's, uh, deception goes to uh, a media outlet that basically presents it to the entire nation, and in some cases, the world. This is it.
told me that they had participated in projects that had recovered crashed extraterrestrial craft, what you call UFOs. And uh, they never told these stories unless they had quite a bit to drink. So I never really believed it. these guys are running a scam on me, you know, even though I'd heard about these things when I was a kid, uh, I just still didn't believe it. It's just so far out in left field, it's not something that you really give any serious thought to until something personal happens, which came later. When I left the Air Force, I went into the Navy, which is really where I wanted to be in the first place. I'd always had this tremendous uh, feeling and connection with the, with the ocean. I was an excellent swimmer, um, but I had a problem as a, as a child. I, was, I had chronic motion sickness. I got in a car and we went on a long trip. I got deathly ill, and same with boats or, or anything. I couldn't ride on the things at the carnival that went around and around um, because it just made me tremendously ill. But I decided after I had uh, gone through the Air Force experience that, uh, sick or not, you know, I was going to go in the Navy because that's really what I had wanted to do, so I did volunteered for submarine duty um, and was assigned to the USS Tyru SS-416, which was a diesel-electric boat, World War II type, that had been reconfigured. Uh, when I went on board the, the boat, it was in the dry dock in Pearl Harbor, in the shipyard. It had literally been cut in half and put in a 12-foot sonar section and then three domes from the deck for triangulating the targets using sonar. This was really one of the most up-to-date electronically submarines that we had. Uh, it wasn't a nuclear submarine, but uh, as, as far as the ability to approach, get close to a target and destroy it, um, it, it had a better capacity to do that than any other boat that we had. Um, while we were on a transit from the Portland, Seattle area on the surface, I actually saw I saw the most incredible thing that I think I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, it, and it had such a profound effect upon my view of the universe and the world that we live in that I wish everybody could experience this. I saw come up out of the ocean, from beneath the surface of the sea, a huge disc-shaped craft about the size of a midway-class aircraft carrier, which is tremendous in size. One of our smallest carriers there was then. Uh, it's still a huge, tremendously big object. Came up out of the ocean and rose into the air and tumbled on its axis and went up into the clouds. And I was awestruck, dumbstruck. And uh, I mean, dumbstruck literally. I could not utter a sound. Uh, my first impulse was to tell the officer of the deck that I'd seen a flying saucer. But luckily for me, I couldn't talk. On second thought, that's not what I really wanted to say uh, because I didn't want to be the only Looney Tunes character on the submarine with a tight-knit crew that you had to live close close quarters with uh, because that's uh, that's a hell of a way to live. So I told the officer deck that I'd seen something about 15 degrees off the port bow at a relative distance of about two and a half to three miles, and uh, he began to look. And the starboard lookout had heard me tell him this, and he began to look over there. And while we were all three watching, either the same craft or another one exactly like it came down.
out of the clouds and tumbled again, and that's why it did this maneuver. I don't know, but every single time it did it. It's like it came down in this attitude, and then it flipped over and then entered the water. Uh, and the water just appeared to open up in front of it. It's just like the account in the, in the Bible about parting with the Red Sea. That's exactly what happened. The sea actually parted in this thing into the water and closed up behind it. And this big spray into the air. But it wasn't a spray from the craft hitting the water. It was a spray from the water coming back in to fill up this hole that it didn't hear. And um, again, you know, I think it just, this is incredible. Like, what are we looking at here? And it was metal. It was a machine. It wasn't glowing or anything like that. It didn't have any lights on it that we could see. But it was obviously metal. It was obviously a machine. Uh, although I can't tell you that there was anyone inside of it, I believe that there was. Uh, and it did something that, that, as far as I know, was absolutely impossible. I'd been in the Air Force. I'd worked on the state of the art of our of our uh, aviation capabilities, and here I was on the deck of a submarine conning tower, and I knew what we had to be able to have to go underwater, and I knew that the two were incompatible. Here's something that came from under the water and flew in the air and performed maneuvers, and then came back down and interfaced with the water at tremendous speed uh, and remained intact, uh, which realistically, it, it never touched the water. The water sort of magically opened up in front of it. Something had to interface with that water. Anything that we had that interfaced with the water in that manner would have been disintegrated. It's like hitting a brick wall. So I was looking at a technology that as far as our laws of physics and what we knew at that time didn't exist. This was in 1966. Uh, and uh, Ball was as shocked as I was. He called the captain to the bridge, came up with the chief quartermaster and brought a camera. And uh, we all stood there and watched this occur over and over again for about 10 minutes. And I still, to this day, don't know if it was the same craft or a whole bunch of different craft moving in and out of the water. But it seemed like that there was a hell of a lot of traffic on that freeway right there. And we were watching it as we went by. We never changed course. We never lowered our, or increased our speed. Uh, we made no attempt to communicate or signal. And we made no attempt to get closer. Um, and eventually, it just stopped. We were told not to discuss it with anyone, not even amongst ourselves, which was incredible. I never had been told anything like that in my life. I mean, we can't talk about something. And to be told that we couldn't even talk about it amongst ourselves was more extraordinary, I thought. Um, but we didn't. We didn't talk about it. When we got to uh, Pearl Harbor, oh, all, all the time, the chief quartermaster was taking pictures. So I know photographs were made. Uh, what happened to those photographs, I have no idea. But when we reached Pearl Harbor, we were not allowed to go ashore to, uh, to uh, go on liberty, even though we didn't have the duty. And about two hours after we berthed uh, at the submarine base, a commander from the Office of Naval Intelligence came on board and uh, debriefed each one of us individually in the captain's statement. And the the ultimate outcome of the debriefing was that we didn't see anything, we didn't hear anything, and we had to read rules and regulations uh, that told us that if we ever talked about what it was that we didn't see, 
that we could uh, be imprisoned, uh, we could be fined $10,000, we could lose all pay allowances due and come due. And I learned at that moment that the United States Navy didn't want anybody to know um, about what we saw and that uh, severe consequences could come down around the neck of anybody who did. And that was when I understood fully that, uh, yeah, there's a real cover-up. These things do exist, number one, uh, and uh, at least the United States Navy doesn't want anybody to know about it. And there's stiff penalties for anybody who bucks that. Mm -hmm. Moving forward a, a few years from, what, 1966, mm -hmm. I believe, you gained a special security clearance that uh, uh, revealed to you certain documents or were revealed to you or that you saw yes. relating to this very uh, cover-up. To this and many other things. Um, I was eventually trained um, by Naval Security and Intelligence, and I was given a secondary NEC, which is Naval Enlisted Code, which was 9545, which is Internal Security Specialist. And um, an internal security specialist is someone who protects classified information, protects uh, uh, areas, so to speak. Uh, and I had a specialty, which I was trained in, which was Pacific Area Intelligence Briefings. And I was eventually assigned to the Commander-in-Chief of the United States and Pacific Fleet, who was Admiral Bernard Clary at that time, and uh, served as a member of his intelligence briefing team. And basically all that means, we really had a wonderful job. You come in about 4 o'clock in the morning and you go through all the message traffic and all everything. And uh, what you do is, you, we, what we did was we prepared an updated briefing on everything that was happening in his half of the world, which he commanded, the Naval Forces uh, and Marine Forces, as a matter of fact. And uh, put all this together in a briefing where we would update him on ongoing operations, and brief him about operations that were scheduled to begin, um, um, political situations, uh, deployment of Soviet forces, naval forces, everything. And uh, after the briefing was finished, uh, between 8 and 10 o'clock in the morning, then we were done. You know, we were finished. Um, so it was what you call fat cat duty or you know, duty in the Navy. It's got all different kinds of names. It's, it's just really a a wonderful job. Now, to be able to function in this job, I had to have a, a security clearance, which gave me access to the information that I had to need to know to help prepare these briefings. Uh, and when I first was assigned to the command, I was attached to the OPSTAT office under Lieutenant Commander Mercado, uh, which was uh, operational status reporting. And uh, while I waited for my security clearance, and it took six months to get it. What I, what I eventually ended up with was a top secret Q clearance uh, with an SCI attachment, which means uh, sensitive compartmentalized information, and there were no blocks. In other words, there, there was nothing confining me to only certain compartmentalized information. I had access to whatever the Admiral and his staff had access to uh, because we had to prepare briefings and brief these people on all of these these things. And uh, I'm sure that at first uh, I was tested and wasn't shown a whole lot, but eventually when they began to have confidence in me, 
Uh, I began to see things coming across my desk that were just absolutely incredible. And, and a lot of it is, is really hard to talk about because it's so far uh, outside the normal concept of reality for the average American that, um, that they're going to find a hard time uh, believing any of it. Mm -hmm. But I saw documents that were uh, labeled uh, under the classification top secret and uh, the compartmentalized uh, the compartment that that was put into it was called MAGIC, M-A-J-I-C. Mm -hmm. Um, which told me that, uh, that UFOs are real, which I already knew. I'd seen one. Right. Uh, but this went farther than that. It told me that they were extraterrestrial in origin, that there were four different extraterrestrial uh, species or races visiting this earth, uh, and that they had actually entered into an agreement with the United States government with one of these uh, species um, of alien beings to exchange technology, and it told me all the projects that that uh, was underneath this uh, uh, project red light was actually the testing of extraterrestrial craft um, uh, project plato was a diplomatic project uh, pounce was the recovery of technology uh, pluto was the uh, the application of that technology to our own secret space program not the public space program there are two different space programs one is the, what the public gets to see, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, overseen by NASA, and the other one is a secret space program that nobody gets to see, which is really overseen by um, uh, the Navy Department uh, under, under specialized, uh, uh, compartmentalized black projects. And, uh, and, and, and what these people are doing in secret is just absolutely incredible. I also saw uh, documents under an operation called Operation Majority, which uh, outlined the plans to bring together a one-world government. It also included extraterrestrial information within that. Um, uh, project Grudge, which was um, the second project. First was signed, and then Project Grudge, which contained all of the extraterrestrial information up to a certain point. I forget the year cutoff. And then it was contained after that, in another project uh, called Project Aquarius, which was the accumulation of the whole history of alien intera interaction on, on planet Earth. Um, but I have to say at this point that I don't know if those documents were really telling the truth or not. They could have been showing me these things so that eventually I would go out and talk about this. And uh, maybe that will become clear to you later why they may have done that. Um, it could be at this at this point, person from a personal standpoint, what was it that you know, based on your experience in '66, and they said, "Do not, absolutely, do not reveal this to anybody." And here we are, a few years later, and you're seeing documents that prove that you saw what you saw was real. Mm -hmm. What was the one factor or a number of factors that led you to the decision to say, "I've got to get this out. I've got to tell people about this." I saw contingency plans called Majestic. And these contingency plans were to, um, well, first place, a contingency is a plan that can be implemented if certain things occur. And the certain things that would have tripped this contingency plan are, number one, the public sector is getting too close to the truth, so they have to implement this to get them steered off the track. Or, number two, we don't want to tell the public the truth about the alien presence, but there's so much alien activity occurring that the public is on the verge of finding out any, anyway. 
let's tell them this story so that it doesn't cause uh, um, consequences that we don't want. And that plan was called Majestic. I was in a bookstore one time. I'd never seen UFO magazine. Didn't know. Didn't even know it exists. In fact, I didn't even know that there was a UFO culture in the world of people who uh, who uh, study UFOs or worship UFOs or have little UFO meetings. I had no idea that that was occurring. I was in a bookstore one time, and I'm looking at the magazine rack. I'm an avid reader, and I'm always in bookstores. And, and this one day, I saw a magazine just popped right out at me. It's UFO. And I picked it up, and I looked inside, and here is Majestic, all right there. And even, even the people who had been named to implement the plan were the ones who were actually implementing it. Uh, William Moore, Stanton Friedman, I'd never heard of Jamie Chandray, but he was named, and they had brought out a, a supposed genuine document called the Eisenhower Briefing Document, which in reality is a fraudulent document. It's a, it's a fake, and it was created to implement the plan Majestic, to uh, either indoctrinate the public on what the government wants the public to perceive is happening or to, uh, to steer uh, researchers away from the truth, or both. So this wasn't it, uh, revealing the plan of Majestic, but it was actually uh, 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 implementing the plan. Implementing the plan against the public. It was a psychological operation against the okay, public. So this is what you saw. So... Uh, Immediately, I began, my head began to spin around, and I began to think, God, you know, I, I, I've got to uh, tell people that they're, they're being manipulated. This is a lie. And it really, if, if the public were using their own intellect, they would know that it was a lie. The executive order quoted for, the, for, the, for the, uh, this document was 92,000-something. I believe it was 92,447, uh, which is 92,447. And it was supposedly written by Truman. But Truman never wrote an executive order higher than 9,000. I mean, even today, there's no executive order with the, with the number 92,000 on it. They've been consecutive since, since the beginning. So it was clearly fraudulent. So it's clearly fraudulent, but the public doesn't catch on to this. And uh, here you got Stanton Friedman, one of the guys who implemented the, the contingency plan, Majestic, running around the country telling everybody it's not... Seven, um, which it very well could be a date, but it's listed in that document as being an executive order of the President of the United States, Harry Truman, uh, and and because of that, it's fake, and uh, and many other things, but specifically that is the most glaring uh, proof of uh, fraudulent intent uh, in the document. There are many other things in the document that also prove it's a forgery. But here they are. They're running this contingency plan, and here I am. I know all about it, and here's the public out there biting it. They even ran that thing in the New York Times, like a two- or three-page spread showing all the documents. Uh, so it had tremendous credibility lent to it by that action. And uh, so I decided uh, that, I, that I had to tell the public and uh, get people on the right track, which is the right track is don't believe anybody. Don't believe me. Don't believe George Bush. Don't believe anyone. You got to go out and you got to get proof in your hand before you can believe anything. And to do otherwise today is is the biggest mistake that anyone can ever make. Um, you begin believing people, uh, putting your trust in them that they're telling you the truth. I guarantee you, you're going to take a ride on a roller coaster you don't want to be on. Mm -hmm. 
Now this this controversy, and I, I say the very the very understatement controversy. Yes. <laughs> uh, it it also is now extending based on some things that you're revealing uh, into the Kennedy assassination. Yes, in the in the set of documents, which really was literally two or three file cabinets of documents called Operation Majority, uh, I saw documents which told me what happened in Dallas and why. And uh, basically what these documents said was that uh, the intelligence community felt that John F. Kennedy was a threat to the national security, which translated into reality means was a threat to the New World Order, the one world government which they were uh, actively uh, in the process of forming. Was there anything on record that indi indicated that he was out to, uh, well, things that he, he did would threaten that New World Order? Oh, absolutely. He had written an executive order. I don't remember the exact number now, but it's available to anybody that wants to go look it up. Uh, he had written an executive order uh, ordering the printing of United States notes, which would have broken the back of the Federal Reserve, which is one of the major instruments of propelling the United States into the New World Order by destroying our, our economy, the basis upon which we live. Mm -hmm. um, the basis upon which our, our whole society is founded is, is being ripped right out from under us. Um, that was one. Number two, he refused to provide air support for the invasion of Bay of Pigs, which ensured that that would be a failure. He had threatened publicly on several occasions to disband the CIA and scatter it to the thousand winds. Uh, he had uh, ordered, in, in the documents that I saw, he had ordered the intelligence community prepare a plan to disclose the truth about UFOs to the public. Now, I don't know what that truth was. could be that maybe there are no extraterrestrials. But whatever the truth was, he had ordered a plan to be prepared that that disclosure was going to be done according to that plan within the following year. And uh, the intelligence community considered that to be out of the question. And uh, according to the documents that I saw, his assassination was ordered by the policy committee of the Bilderberg Group, which is really the secret world government, and was carried out by agents of Division 5 of the FBI, the Secret Service, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Office of Naval Intelligence, of which I was a part, in Dallas. And it said that the assassin, the man who actually administered the head wound, was the driver of the car, William Greer, a Secret Service agent, who used an assassination pistol built by the CIA for assassinations that was really an air gun um, that fired an exploding pellet or could fire a small hypodermic needle or a poison dart uh, using any one of many uh, different uh, deadly poisons. Specifically, it said that he fired an exploding pellet which contained shellfish toxin and that the act was plainly visible in a film withheld from the public. I looked for 16 years to find that film, and I finally found a copy that showed William Greer turn around and shoot the president. And since 1988, I've been uh, um, showing that film wherever I'm, I, I'm able to show it to wake people up. It is not our government, though you have to understand, that is doing these things. It is not our government that's failing us. It's not the Constitution or the Bill of Rights that it's, that's a bad instrument. It is a group of men who belong to secret societies who have infiltrated our society and our government at all levels and are destroying it and subverting it from within. And every member of naval intelligence that I knew who was an officer was uh, a 32nd or a 33rd degree Freemason. 
And I asked my uh, commanding officer at one point, I said, why are all you guys Masons? He said, Masons are used to keeping secrets. It's part of their fraternity. So if you want someone who already knows how to keep a secret, you recruit Freemasons. Well, later on, I found out what the truth is. The truth is, is you're not going to be a naval intelligence officer unless you are a Freemason. Or remember the ancient order of the Rose and Cross, but you have to be high degrees uh, for that. I think the reason I was selected as enlisted men is because I had belonged to the Demolay Society. Which is why, as a teenager, that's sort of the first level of Freemasonry. That's how they recruit teenagers uh, and indoctrinate them into their principles so that they go right into Freemasonry when they become an adult. Uh, so, uh, basically, that's the story. Okay. Well, uh, based on the information that you're revealing, which would seem to be equally or if not more of a threat than what Kennedy was originally planning on doing, is, is actually revealing the underlying cause of all of this. Why is it that you are here today, or how is it that you are here today, and you're not, you know, take conveniently taken away and put in a padded cell somewhere so that you can't speak of these things? Well, I really don't know um, the true answer to that question because you would have to ask them to find out why they haven't done anything. Uh, but I can tell you this: I began to reveal information in 1976, and I was. Uh, physically attacked on two occasions. My skull was caved in. That's what all these scars are here. Um, on the second attack, I lost my leg. They visited me in the hospital. They had no intention of killing me. They were delivering a message to me. Shut up. And that was the message that came through loud and clear. Uh, and uh, two men who identified themselves with uh, identification cards who belonged to the defense uh, Alright guys, that's uh, part one of the Bill Cooper interview. I will be uploading the second part soon. Hope you guys enjoyed. Um, hashtag we do not consent. Look me up on YouTube under Sky News Daily and Blunt News Music. Um, trying to expose all the rappers promoting the negativity into our young ones. It's time to change it up. Alright guys, Sky News Daily, a.k.a. Blunt News Music. Peace and love to all my Sky Brothers and Sky Sisters.